Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. I'm guessing that people have always said at various points in time that right now is a period of great change, yet it feels like the sponsorship industry at the moment is in the middle of huge change. There's a more laser-like focus on achieving return on investment and return on objective. New technologies are helping both rights holders and brands manage and measure their portfolios. Women's sport is growing, as is esports. There's augmented reality, virtual reality, and the list goes on with our access to so many properties, and not just sport, often on demand, now available 24-7, wherever we are in the world. And we've welcomed guests on the podcast from Nielsen Sports, recently to discuss IP owners taking control of content, the huge opportunity that Asia presents, and the changing attention spans of those consumers we're all trying to reach. So surely it is our generation who is right this time when we say there's never been a bigger time of change. And as sponsorship professionals, stakeholders just expect you to get on with it and be successful. However, what isn't often talked about is how the change is impacting the employment market, the skills required to be successful, as well as team structures, and how to find and retain great talent. One person who has a deep understanding of the sponsorship employment market is Jonathan Harris, Managing Partner Australia at Sports Recruitment International. And Jonathan joins us on the show to take us inside the sponsorship employment market. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 44 of Inside Sponsorship. Wherever you are in the world and whether you are a long-time listener or a new one, it's great to have you listening in. And speaking of listeners... One thing you will notice in my chat with Jonathan is some listener questions. It's the first time we fielded questions from listeners prior to the show, so thank you to Bruce Rosenthal and Gene Willers, who both submitted questions, which I've asked Jonathan later in the show. That's going to be a regular thing, offering you the chance to ask questions of guests, so keep an eye out on the email and the social channels in the lead-up to the next show to find out what the topic will be, who the guest is, and submit a question of your own. Also joining us on the show, as usual, is our MD, Mark Thompson, who discusses his latest blog, which looks at the changing skills needed from sponsorship professionals and the makeup of commercial teams in both rights holders and brands. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome back to the show. Hi, Daniel. How are you going? I'm good. How have you been? Yeah, it's been ages since I last spoke to you. <laughs> the listeners might not know that uh, we're recording this one probably, I don't know how long, a couple of weeks ahead yep. uh, in advance because you will be out of the country. I'll you might a... be out of the country when this airs. Yeah, we'll be. I'm. Um... You better figure it out because I'm terrible at maths and dates. Yeah, I, I actually fly out two days earlier, so okay. I'll, I'll probably be in the air as this airs. Can you tell the audience what episode we're up to? <laughs> um, it'll be close to 50. No, it's about 45, 46 maybe. That's close. Anyway, yeah, it's almost time for a big cake. So, it's about it's your age. Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. Let's talk about – you're biased. Yeah, you're course, biased whenever we talk about sponsorship, right? Yeah. You're like the Mr. Cricket of sponsorship. Mm-hmm. There's your new nickname, Mr. Sponsorship. Mr. Sponsorship. You like that? <laughs> no. Bad luck. That's what makes a good nickname <laughs> is when the person doesn't like it. So – Mr. Sponsorship, welcome to the show. You're pretty biased though, aren't you? I am very biased. What are you biased about this time when we're talking about sponsorship? Mate, I've I've got a bit of a saying that when I go in and consult organisations and talk to them is that the sponsorship people within their organisation are some of the most dynamic, multi-purpose, highly skilled and um, commercially minded people within any organisation. Why do you say that? Look, traditionally sponsorship professionals have to be 
the ultimate project managers. You know, they've they've got to work across multiple elements of your of, of any rights holder um, organization. They have to, you know, keep people happy. They have to call in favors without it seeming like a favor. They have to remember what favors they've called in. But all of this happens with no budget. Um, yeah. And not enough people. So, um, you know, and people thinking it's pretty easy sponsorship. You know, yeah, mate. And it can be a real juggling act. You know, coming from somebody that had a, a very, very, very slim organisation at one point, um, it's a real juggling act. And and only certain types of people with a real generalist skill set, so not mm. a specialist skill set, um, in the past have been able to master that. And and I say in the past because times are changing. Sounds like it could be a good segue for a song, but I can't remember who sung that song, Times They Are A-Changing. Any ideas? <laughs> no. If, uh, if you're listening? Probably those that are mid-40s in age would get that. You should know no, that. No, no, no. It's probably older than that. So, Mum, if you're listening, if you ring in and let us know who sung that song, that would be very handy. But <laughs> times are changing. Why? So although the function and ability to work across multiple layers of an organisation, you know, that for a sponsorship professional, that, that sort of stuff will never change. So the, the dynamicism of commercially minded individuals, the need for those people are always going to be there. But there's a bit of a revolution coming about in sponsorship in that there's actually now a need for specialist individuals as well to make up part of dedicated sponsorship teams. So, you know, and they need to coexist within those teams in part due to sort of technology being used in everyday sponsorship practice, but mostly there's been a noticeable shift towards sponsorship as a strategy. We talk about this all the time, objective-based partnerships mm. rather than transactional ones. Because of sponsorship being used as a strategy by brands, more more and more you know, convincingly and sophisticated every day, the partnership role of rights holders um, now is more important. So then you need specialist skills to be able to deliver on what you're selling. So what are some of those specialist skills? How are the teams evolving and, and the good teams evolving and... and focusing on those skills that you think are important. What are those skills? Look, sort of the new sponsorship team um, will have at least two. Some sort of lower tier rights holders will have at least two, but more commonly we're seeing core four roles available to sort of prospective sponsorship managers that want to maybe enter the marketplace. And depending on the size, you might have multiple people in these core areas. Mm, Exactly right. It's scalable. It's all sort of quantifiable and scalable depending on the size. But... The new age sponsorship team will have a sort of senior management and sort of senior management will exist in any team, but there might might be multiple layers of senior management, for example. And those individuals have oversight and some knowledge or skills which relate to all other aspects of the sponsorship team and they'll be involved in the sales process at a sort of larger level, um, sort of no matter what the organisation size is. Yep. So that's senior management. What's yeah. next? Well, the Are core, these in any order or? Well, the core skills you'd sort of want to have if you want to be a senior manager are sort of you've got to be a generalist. You can't be a specialist. You've got to be a strategic thinker. Um, you need to be a leader because you've got, you're have got going to have lots of people following you. And rights holders are generally quite transient organisations and very ambitious people. So you mm. want somebody who can sort of motivate. Um, commercially minded and considerate of wider business impact of decisions and, and results focus. That's generally the, the traits that you'll see in a senior manager. So that first core skill or, or role is senior management. What's next? So sales is becoming more and more of a specialist um, 
role, but in some smaller organisations it will be combined with a partnerships management role or the senior manager will just take all responsibility. But in the wider rights holder community, it's sort of now focused, dedicated role, bringing a whole new level of professionalism to the commercialisation of rights holders. And the core skills sort of we're seeing there, are, you know, those sorts of people are really motivated by doing deals. You know, they're deal makers. Yep. Um, they're sophisticated in their approach. There's no more of the boiler room just picking up the phone and having yeah. people. <laughs> no, they actually have a What do you mean you want to speak to your wife? This stock's here now. <laughs> method to madness, you know. They're, they're, well, it's they, not a numbers game, is it? No, they kind of know what they're doing, right? Mm. It's not, yeah, but it's not just purely if I make 100 phone calls, I'll, I'll get two or three and that'll be good enough. Exactly. You're going to be more sophisticated than that. Yeah, and, and systematic too. So I actually have a process to walk through a sales cycle and a sales sort of process with people. Um, these people are ruthless, but they can also play the long game with that ruthlessness. I like this one because I like the the element of the long game because it focuses more on what they're trying to help a brand achieve rather than themselves just getting an outcome, which is the sale and move on to mm. the next one. They need to. And I think the next point that you'll probably bring up is quite well linked to that. Yeah, well, and they're well networked. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. Senior management, sales, what's next? Partnerships. Yes. So again, small organisations, these sort of roles might be combined with sales functions, but more commonly it is actually a standalone role across the sector now. And so these are sort of successful partnership managers are really well-organised people. They're widely liked and have a core role in ensuring you know consistent revenue lines can be actually relied upon by you know, your CFO and, because and senior management. It, because if they're not good... Mm. It's just like pouring water from the sales team into a bucket with a hole in the bottom. These guys are the ones that mm. help retain sponsors. Yep. Yes, mm. exactly right. And then, you know, they look after inside sales. You know, you're upselling and showing a value so you can actually make sure your first transaction with a partner is not your smallest. So to do that, what are some of the core skills they need? Um, you know, they're delivery focused, so making sure things are done when they're said to be done. Um, they have the ability to create and maintain deep and meaningful relationships. Very goal orientated people. So, you know, having setting targets, setting objectives, tracking them, hitting them um, with a systematic and project management skill set. Yep. And then, you know, they understand they've got actually a bit. A, Nowadays, a much deeper understanding of, of where marketing fits into sponsorship and how to uh, align objectives with outcomes and how they can work with a partner to, to execute in alignment with those. Very good. So we've got the senior manager or senior management providing the strategic thinking and the, and the leadership and, and setting the tone for the culture. You've got the sales guys out there playing the long game and networking, bringing deals in across the table, the partnerships team backing those up, as you said, doing the internal selling, the retention, very goal-orientated, delivering what needs to be done to keep everybody happy. What's the fourth one? These are new kids on the block. Oh, it's very music-orientated <laughs> or focused podcast. And old school. You too. would have been a massive fan of uh, NKOTV. Um, As the cool kids used to call them. <laughs> I wasn't a cool kid. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the, I mean, service and strategy get people. So th these individuals sort of um, were in the past borrowed from other business units, mm. you know, where, whereas they bring specialist skills to the table and they enable sort of rights holders and brand to run more business-focused, marketing-based and sophisticated sponsorship programs. So therefore their core skills... Um, enable you to have dedicated resources in these areas. Now, well, actually, it's a must-have 
dedicated sort of resource in, in parts of these. And if you're a really big organisation, you actually might break these out into their own little sort of units as well. So they, they don't just necessarily sit under the services strategy area. They, they might break out into their own wider group because they're so important to you. I think one of the interesting things here is those skills that those people bring. Mm. Um, if we think back to might have been the last episode where we spoke about attention spans and challenger brands and bringing smaller brands into your portfolio because there's opportunities to do that. Yep. They're the ones that are quite, uh, how do I put this, they might not have the budget and internal resources themselves to help activate a sponsorship and, mm. and those benefits properly. So they're going to rely more on you. So it's important that you're upskilled with these these skills inside the sponsorship team and, as you said, not borrowed from other areas because when you go to ask somebody to do something for you, they're like, oh, well, that's number 45 on the list. You're yeah. not my priority. Yeah. They sit inside your team mm. right back at the top of the tree. The senior manager gate, the strategy is, please focus on this. Well, that it also enables you to, if we think back to the best ever podcast answer we've had on this program, Stu Ramsey. Stu Ramsey. Hello, Stu. From South, South Have you enjoyed your certificate I sent over? <laughs> well, Southampton at the time. Um, basically, using challenger brands, understanding what their challenges are, bringing them into a Premier League football club opportunity, but acting like an agency for them, mm. using these different um, elements of their team to actually work together to tell a story. And that's, you know, the big thing he spoke about in that answer. And, and this is how they're able to do it, you know, in those bigger organisations. And so some of the core skills that they, that they see are dedicated digital team skills. So dedicated you know, social media teams. Understanding the strategy, yeah. when to post, how to post, what works, what doesn't. Yep. Yeah, and not just on social media and other digital platforms as well, your systems and, and whatnot as well. You've got graphic design teams. Um, that are sort of on tap for you and, and needed all the time now. Um, content creation, delivery, and ideation or yep. activation, because you know these are partnerships. As a rights holder or a brand, you need to have people constantly working on those sort of ideation and activation ideas. And then the, the final one sort of can be broken into multiple levels. Sometimes is still borrowed, but you know your compliance and brand management people. So you know your legal, your procurement, your IT, finance, even to a to a certain point. I'd be interested on your thoughts as you were saying that because you spoke earlier about how quite often, you know, the more sophisticated teams now have these skills sitting in-house that uh, that you spoke about the ideation and the activation. You've got your partnerships guys out there and the sales guys dealing on the coalface. Is it a good idea to take some of those people that are good at coming up with content ideas to those early meetings to help get the client excited about the types of things your organisation can help them with or... Are they better off sitting in the background until you, the salesperson or the partnership manager, partnerships manager person has got the deal and says, okay, now you can come and help? Yeah, no, I, I think um, it, it's horses for courses really, but it depends where you're at to in your pitch stage and what the what the actual important um, elements of your ascertained have been for those that you're pitching to. So if it is somebody that is a challenger brand and, and they might not have the um, ability to you know, it might be a worry for them. We really like this partnership, but we're not worried. We're, we're worried we're not going to be able to activate this properly or put the resources into developing the right content and stuff, and you can bring your expertise with you. And, you know, these might not necessarily be fully employed in-house people, but they need to be fully dedicated resources to your sponsorship team. It could come from the form of an agency that you have on retainer and things like that as well. Yep. But they need to be involved definitely throughout the partnership all the time. 
and sometimes if the time's right at upfront sales also at renewal yeah get the client excited if you need to what um what's the outlook for these new age and evolving sponsorship teams yeah you know old school boards would always say you know we need more money get more sponsorship oh yeah they're, they're gray-haired <laughs> men in the grade suits yeah, yeah nice. faceless men faceless men. um <laughs> for ages sponsorships sort of has been that leaned on source of revenue it will always be a leaned on source of revenue but you know, in some places, it's totally responsible keeping the doors open. But mm. I think the 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 misalignment of leaning on the revenue versus resources given has really created a roadblock in the people that, as I say, the most sort of capable people in any organisation being able to actually provide full value that that they can. Bringing those barriers down and the evolution that we're facing in sponsorship is sort of giving a dedicated business unit with their own you know budgets they're a cost center as well as an income center would, would you, know, you agree it's with, actually make bigger results would you agree well interesting you say bigger results would you agree with the point i'm just throwing it out here you got to spend money to make money right mm. it's a fair truism no matter where you work but in a lot of organizations that hasn't been applied to the commercial team and the sponsorship team it's it's almost been here's the bare minimum now go and deliver some big things and i think organisations are starting to realise, you know, what if we invest a little bit in that team with the right skills or the supporting tools to do their job right, we spend a little bit more money, the return on investment is much bigger. It's disproportionate. Yeah, well, I mean, the simple man's view on how used to work is you have your income generating departments, you have your cost centres. Your cost centres cost you money to staff, but they're necessary. All departments of an organisation play a role in generating income now, and it's because the technology that is at play through systems and things as well, enable you to make smarter decisions and your finance team can you know, play a massive role on your deal making because they can help with your profit margins. And you know, everybody is involved in the money making, but also everybody now is an expense as well because mm. you can't, as you, as you just said very rightly, you can't make money without spending it. Mm. You think we've grown up? Sponsorship's grown up. We're now big boys at the big table. Okay. Um, let me – I'm going to ask for a number. How old do you think we are? Um, <laughs> we're, a, we're a very mature, very mature early 20s. Oh, okay. Very <laughs> good. All right. Good chat. Um, and listeners, if you're in London, you, you're going to be in London when this comes out? Um, Is that where you're going to be? I Dubai, London, and then on to New York and LA. Okay. Yeah. So if you're a listener in any of those areas, um, get in contact. Mark would uh, – Love you to buy him. I mean, he'll buy you a beer. Yes? Yeah, why not? Very good. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, mate. Managing teams in Sydney and Melbourne as Sports Recruitment International's Managing Partner Australia, Jonathan Harris's role is to drive performance and growth in the Australasian business through partnering with clients to deliver executive and retain search assignments, as well as advising on executive board structures to best lead overall business strategy. The Australasian team has built a world-class practice working with rights holders, clubs and teams, agencies, national governing bodies, and sporting goods brands, focusing on the increasingly important areas of commercialisation in sport and elite performance and participation. Jonathan joins us to discuss the sponsorship employment market. Here's Jonathan. Jonathan Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Looking forward to it. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to ease our guests into this process uh, and also just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better outside of uh, just the role that you're here to speak about and the topic. First icebreaker question is, if you could be anyone in 
anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Uh, good question. Um, I think it would definitely be somebody in the sports arena, um, possibly a retired sports person, I reckon, as the attention and pressure placed on um, elite athletes nowadays is far too great. So, so you know, somebody who doesn't take themselves too seriously, maybe a, maybe an Ian Botham or a, or a Gary Lineker, something like that. What about a Freddie Flintoff? He seems to have a pretty good life as a retired cricketer. Yeah, a Freddie, you seem to do pretty well. <laughs> uh, the second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Um, I grew up in the West Country uh, in in England and and had all sorts of sort of farm and, and dairy related jobs as a teenager. Strawberry picker was my first job. I worked in a uh, cheese factory, a yogurt factory, all sorts of uh, all sorts of um, funny old roles. Interesting. I don't think we've had a strawberry picker as their first job on the show before. So congratulations. Now I lasted I lasted one summer and then I got massively used to get calluses underneath your thumbnail. I had to uh, had to retire at fourteen. <laughs> have you gone off strawberries or do you still like? I have, them? mate. Not touched one since. Not touched one since. <laughs> um, Jonathan, hopefully everybody uh, who's listening to the show is reasonably familiar with SRI. But just in case they aren't, can you? Just set the scene a little bit for us and tell us about SRI and then what your role is there. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so uh, SRI, or, or Sports Recruitment International, as it originated, um, has been part of the sports industry for uh, about 17 years now. Um, we were born in Europe um, just after the Sydney Olympics. Um, uh, and then I actually launched our Australian office in in 2010 um the sydney office was our fourth office on a, on a global basis um and at that time we had maybe 15 or 20 staff um and we now have uh 10 or 11 offices across eight countries and about 60 staff um in terms of my role we have a we have a, a global partnership structure um and i'm one of our 11 partners in the global business uh, with responsibility for our ANZ practice um, and then additionally also play a role in our Asian uh, Asian football activities as well. Um, as I said earlier, the organisation was kind of born uh, and focused upon the sports industry and, and over time uh, with the convergence of, of these worlds, we, we're, we're increasingly focused on that broader sports media digital and entertainment space, I guess. So we've got you on the show to discuss uh, the employment and, and the recruitment space in the sponsorship industry. Let's start what I would probably consider is step one. How big does a role have to be for it to be worthwhile for an employer to engage somebody like SRI? And what are some of the telltale signs that if they're doing it themselves, you know, look, it just might be easier to engage a recruiter to do this properly for us? Yep, um, that makes sense. Look, there are no set rules in, in that area, uh, and there's no kind of one-size-fits-all um, uh, approach here. Certainly, uh, scale and salary or, or, or seniority uh, is sometimes a, a good guide to a, to a role that, that should go to, to a search exercise. Um, but it's not necessarily always just around um, the budget or the salary involved. You know, there are other... 
there are other bases that a role should or could um, go to go to a search firm. That might be if it's a position where the organisation has simply been struggling to find the right person, uh, and it is you know creation of that sort of supply and demand, and and we can step in with with our database or our international resources to to, to find. Uh, the best person for an organization, but also whether the actual role itself is um, eminently searchable. Um, so where maybe an organization are looking for that uh, really sort of hard to find role, we certainly see that from a sport perspective in the elite and high performance space um, where it's a, it's a, it's a truly um, sort of targeted or rifle shot exercise as opposed to, you know, ca- casting the, the net as wide as possible. Um, but then there are also other other reasons where where a role should and could or will go to a search firm, and that might be where the organisation needs um, discretion. Um, you know, there might be somebody in a position, and, and a board or or, or or a CEO have identified the need to replace them and to do that discreetly without um, public knowledge, uh, and they need a, a discreet search to take place to to exercise that. They can't advertise the role themselves, for example. Or where there's maybe huge scrutiny on an organization and they need the transparency of an external exercise to to, to drive a change exercise or whatever. Um, and again, they need a they need a third party to to execute that. Um, so it's not necessarily just a, a salary or budget driven thing um, that will lead to to our being called um, I'd say. Yeah, it's interesting because that's that that was the genesis for the question is, you know, is there sort of a sweet spot around, you know, seniority or 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 salary? I hadn't considered the uh the scrutiny and the discretion angle, so you you've made some very good points there. Jonathan, when a candidate comes across your desk, what are some of the things that make you take notice? Those things that that pique your interest and make you think, "Geez, this person's going to be a good one." Um Look, I think I think there's no getting away from you know that first impressions. Uh, you know, you only have one chance to make a first impression, and, and I'm, I'm a big believer that 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 an individual can be hugely impactful just in the in the in the first three or five minutes. Um, but you know, I think that does really differ, and I, you know, and I have maybe personal tastes that include a certain style of personality or um, somebody who's clearly switched on or smart or, or that provides me with a really quick and good sense of themselves or of the role or of the organization and the organization's priorities. Uh, but as a, as a recruiter, we have to recognize that it's not about necessarily our personal tastes. Um, we've been engaged by an organization and a, and a hiring manager who will have their own personality and their own instincts around what they need from both a person and an assignment specification. Um, and it's important that we select based upon their priorities, not, not ours. Um, so it's you know it's really about our going out and identifying where those people are, um, and I think that's two part. As I said, it's it's both a a person specification, but also an, you know a role specification. And I think sometimes organisations and and even recruiters you know place too much emphasis on the role specification and and uh, and potentially overlook the importance of the person fit. Um, 
and I'd like you know we're constantly looking to improve in that area. But I'd like to think that's something that that um, uh, a lot of organisations do do quite well. Well, you mentioned that it's not about your personal taste, so clearly it's no secret that your focus is on filling the role for a client for an organisation. But when you do match a great candidate with a great client, how does that make you feel? Oh, look, that's great. That's that's um, that's perfect. That's the sort of perfect storm, really. And and um, you know, being in the industry for a fair while now, it's 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 really good to see people not just in that point of of placement, um, but but seeing people that you've helped five, ten, or fifteen years ago, you know, really kicking really kicking goals, um, and pushing on within the industry, impacting the industry, and progressing into leadership positions. Um, but certainly, you know, there is always there's always examples where where um, we've been given a brief and and um, you, you see somebody uh, in an interview and you just know that it's the you know it's the perfect perfect storm. You know, it's always fate that that um, those, <laughs> those people have come together, and that's great for everybody, for the client, and for SRI, and of course for the candidate. Well, and you've been at SRI for almost eight years. How would you describe? over that journey, how the sports market, both generally but also in terms of sponsorship roles specifically, how much has it changed since when you started compared to what it is now? Um, look, I think uh, more, more at a kind of macro level, it's definitely become more global. You know, we're looking beyond the, the sponsorship or partnerships area. Um, you know, our firm and our expansion internationally um, out, of, out of Europe was born out of the globalization of the industry. Um, and I think you can see that at many areas of, of sport, not just in that sponsorship space. Um, I, I think um, from, a, from a sponsorship or partnerships perspective, um, I think the amount of analysis, the amount of data, um, the amount of science behind any decision has increased. Um, I think we are getting far more sophisticated uh, in how um, we see sponsorships and partnerships being delivered. Um, we, we see organizations, brands being engaged right across a business, uh, right across a sport, really embedded into the organization. Um, um, I would say that the range of Opportunities, the range of the range, sorry, the range of of platforms has diversified. You know, obviously through through different digital channels and social media channels or, or whatever it is, and actually the choice for a prospective brand has increased. Um, so potentially where you'd always see organizations going towards those bigger sort of powerhouse sports, there's been huge diversification across the industry. Um, whether that's the creation of um, youth brands, uh, X Games, esports, or, or female, or, or, or women's properties in AFLW, or Big Bash cricket, Suncorp Super Netball. Yeah, you know, the, the diversification is, uh, is 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 huge. And then that goes beyond sport into arts and entertainment. Um, so it's just become far more complex, um, more scientific. But that then means that I think organizations are also far more judicious about who, how, and when they partner. Um, and that means decision-making is definitely getting slower. Um, you know, whether the pie has increased, the, 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 the diversity of that pie has increased. Um, and I'd say you know, it's, it's, it's harder and harder potentially to do, to do deals. 
Well, clearly the market's changed and you, you touched on a, a lot of great points there in describing that, but focusing specifically on sponsorship roles, on sponsorship and commercial managers, thinking back to what a sponsorship manager looked like sort of skill-wise or, or the typical sponsorship or commercial manager when you first started versus what they look like now, has much changed? Um. Yeah, I think I think it's changing all the time. I think it's evolving all the time. Uh, you know, I think to answer that question, it's really an extension of of the of the last question in, in a way. Um, the, it, it's it's becoming harder and harder to, to sort of um, lock down good good deals, and organisations are, are becoming far more demanding of of their partners. Um, and so, from a recruitment perspective, from a skill set perspective, I would say that there is a, a huge focus on those two aspects uh, of the deal making that being the kind of core sales and, and business development skill set but then also similarly an increasing demand on on first class servicing activations um, and kind of partnership delivery um, and then in turn from a recruitment perspective that you know the challenge then becomes that those two skill sets themselves are actually quite juxtaposed. So not everybody combine the ability to sell with the ability to do, deliver. And that's a, that's not necessarily an issue for a large sport or a major rights holder who obviously then split those resources across an organization. But it is, it is a challenge for a smaller club or, or team um, because often they look to have both the, the sales skill and the delivery skill in the, in the same person, and, and sometimes it's, it's a, that's a, a really hard thing to find. Mm, I'd agree with that a hundred percent. What about the change in in the team makeup? You started to touch on it there, where you know that that distinction between sales and and delivering and managing the the relationship and the delivery at, at big organisations, you know, sometimes split across multiple people. In smaller organisations, it hasn't. H- have sponsorship teams in rights holders changed much in terms of, of, of makeup, in terms of number of people or even just the skills or their focus? Has it changed much over the time that you've been at SRI? Yeah, look, um, it's been, it's been increasing outsourcing of different areas of the sponsorship department. If I look back over the last um, 5, 10, 15 years, commercials sort of merged in with marketing and then has been sort of separated out again at different times. I think the increase in data and analytics and CRM uh, has, has obviously increased. And so the, the bringing in of specialists in that area, organizations such as, such as your own sponsor, um, who obviously focus on that space, um, uh, the increase in, in the digital activation piece and, and huge investment into into those areas, uh, and then a, in, in turn a commercialization of those areas, um, and then uh, you know we haven't necessarily touched on this too much yet, but then also sports innovating within their own properties and their own content, and, and seeing increasing commercial opportunity around around the development of new properties, whether that's you know big bashing cricket or Nitro Athletics or, or Suncorp Super Netball and, and a raft of other innovations that we see. 
it's all changing the makeup of, a, of an organisation sponsorship department. Yeah, and again, you touched us on some really great points. You talked about uh, innovation within uh, the organisation around their content and what they can offer people. And our last podcast uh, episode with uh, Nielsen spoke specifically about that. But then there's also there are some rights holders, and, and I'm kind of this is a note for the listeners, uh, you guys, if you want to head back, uh, I'd have to look up what episode number it was, but. Uh, uh, we had uh, the Sharks. We had Jonathan from um, the Sharks come on, and, and they've got a specific innovation uh, little pocket in their commercial team, which specifically is charged with looking at innovative ways that they that, that the club can grow their revenue. So th- th- there is little pockets of of that happening. Jonathan, without trying to make a question sound too negative, because I, de- I definitely don't want to put focus on the negatives, but what are some of the mistakes you see rights holders making when they're recruiting for sponsorship roles? Look, I do sometimes see individuals roll from one sponsorship role to another, to another, um, without without any analysis of whether they have see- succeeded in the, in, the, in the previous position, uh, or indeed if they would, and their skill sets fit with the, the new property. Um, uh, I do like to see sports or entertainment properties think outside the square, um, hire from outside the industry, or really look to challenge the status quo and, and shift how things are done. I think that's one area. Um, the other is sometimes where an organization might have an underperforming uh, sponsorship function. Um, and they think that simply changing the the person is a is a is the silver bullet mm. to, to turn their business operations around. And without actually analysing what it is beyond that function that potentially needs needs review, whether they've not provided them with the right tools, or the right decks, the right information, or the, or or the right areas or people mix to to, to make it happen. So it, it's not always just as simple as, as changing. The person in the seat, I think that you know, it could be that the organisation needs to review around and beyond that role. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, and I mean, would you agree that if you did know a staff member was leaving and that you were, you obviously needed to recruit for that role, do you think that's a a great point in time where you can say, as, regardless of the size of the rights holder, let's just do a little bit of a review and make sure we sort of get our foundation set again, so that the new person can come in and do really well. Particularly if it is you've got some concerns about some underperforming areas. Yeah. No, exactly. I think a proper assessment of what lies around them, what what the CEO's skill sets are, what the marketing person's skill sets are, and what best what best complements those two uh, is is often important. You get very commercial CEOs, and therefore they might need a, a delivery and activations person beneath them, or or you may get a very just utilising a football club as an example. You may get a very football centric uh, CEO, and and they therefore need the 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 heavyweight commercial and sales skills uh, to, to best complement where they are as an organisation. We've spoken a fair bit about the change in the market and the roles and then team setups and, and stuff like that. One of the big changes or an increased focus uh, around the world at the moment is on women's sport. Is there any significance to the employment landscape and is there any significant impact with that increase in focus on women's sports around the world? Yeah, I think there's huge possibilities, and, and, and I think we're seeing here in Australia massive commercial opportunity um, coming coming with um, the development of these of these properties. Um, uh, S 
SRI believe this is going to grow and grow. We we ran a uh, a recent forum around around women in sport, and I think it's actually an area where Australia can be really very very proud that you know we are truly innovating and at the forefront of this on a, on a global basis. Um, we're way ahead of other countries in doing what we're doing here, whether it's with uh, the CBA's central contracting, the development of these new properties, uh, or providing the the platform for these sports on. On terrestrial television, it, it, um, I think it's an area where Australia can really sort of beat our chest about what we're doing, and and we can, you know, there's no doubt that that major European and North American sports are looking at what's happening here and looking to replicate it overseas. Bruce Rosenthal, Corporate Partnerships and Sponsorship Consultant, has sent a, a question in. Thanks for that, Bruce. And Jonathan, Bruce's question is. When I've recruited for staff to sell and manage sponsorships for membership and trade associations, most of the candidates have experience selling exhibit booths and tote bag logo sponsorships. How can associations find staff who can manage sponsorship programs that have true value for the sponsors and the association? Okay. Um, look, I think I think you will find generally that the best the best fit for an organization you do tend to find that you know the stronger commercial managers have a have a, a very similar orientation or mentality so if it's quite a cerebral sale you will meet quite cerebral uh commercial managers if it's uh if, if it's you know youth brand oriented you'll meet more youth brand oriented commercial managers so for for an organization such as that you you, you want to look at individuals with a similar sort of membership-driven backgrounds, kind of analogous skills across entertainment or or, or conferencing areas. Um, but but there's again, as I've said earlier, there's no kind of one size fits all here. It's all really about sort of personal fit and, and style. This one is a little bit of a self-indulgent question, Jonathan, because I want to know for my own personal. Uh, interest because over the journey I've had to do a, a, a do a few of these and I, I kind of resent doing them. But a resume is still important, and if so, I mean I'm guessing you're going to say they are. But what are some of the things people that people should really focus on in their resume that maybe they don't? So the first question is: Are they still important? I want to know that. And then what should people focus on? Um, look, I might be in a bit of an old fart in this, um, but. But yes, I, I really believe so. Um, uh, we see good and bad CVs all, all the time. Um, for me, for me, they're important uh, in that initial screening exercise. Uh, they should be punchy, clear. Um, again, it's a personal thing, and other people, uh, even indeed other people within SRI, might might argue differently. But uh, personally, I think there should be no graphics or brands or colours or pictures or pie charts. Um, but uh, you know, a good, clear. Punchy CV, three or four pages, um, potentially accompanied with a with a with a cover letter um, that addresses the role for which they're applying. We see a lot of generic applications, and it really is good just to you know we're not necessarily asking people to overhaul their CV for every application, but there's no harm in tailoring or targeting key areas of your experience or highlighting aspects of what you've done in the past. You know, in that have analogies with the role that is being recruited. Now, in the modern world, and and 
uh, if I were recruiting for for Google or Facebook or for a social media business, um, then potentially other uh, other application tools should be assessed, whether it's you know your, your social media profile or or, uh, or a YouTube application or whatever it is. But um, for me, I might be being old school, but uh, <laughs> I say a CV is. is is really important. Fine, I'll concede that point to you. If I concede that point, let's let's say that I'm uh, I, I, I'm interested in a role. Uh, you're the contact. SRI are the search company engaged to to fill that role. Because I think you raise an interesting question around your preferences as a recruiter about what you like to see in a resume. First, and you said others at SRI might. Um, like different things and, and even other employers might like to see resumes in in different ways and I think that's one of the challenges a lot of people face when they're looking for a new role is they don't have a good understanding of their what their target audience's preferences are and in this case you know who the, who's going to read the resume is it worth ringing up or sending an email and saying hi Jonathan I've got multiple copies of my uh, resume they all say the same thing but they're presented differently which would you prefer is it worth doing that yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I think any applic- applicant has to, you know, respect the fact that we're often quite time poor. We might be running seven or eight exercises. So I, I think the preference is always for an initial application with a good, clear cover letter. Um, it, it is personal choice, but I, you know, having said that, about people do have different differing opinions. I, mean, I think generally the SRI perspective would be that a, a good clear, punchy CV with a CV accompanying it will we'll get you that callback anyway. Um, uh, so, but, but, I, but I always prefer to, to have, a, uh, have an initial screening call with, with all prospective candidates at a kind of long list level before then getting down to, to shortlist time. So I've had a screening call with you. I've, I've got the right resume in front of you. I've had a screening call. You're thoroughly impressed by me, let's say, or you're thoroughly impressed by a listener, let's say it's a listener, that listener's off to a big, exciting interview for a new role, they're they're super pumped, and and often when you're in interviews, the the interview panel will ask, do you have any questions for us? Is having some questions prepared a good thing to have, and assuming you're going to say yes, what are some safe but insightful questions that look like you've prepared well that people might consider asking as opposed to just saying no i don't have any questions and then leaving it at that yeah no good um i would say and this is all pretty one-on-one stuff there's no great great insights here but for for all individuals to be prepared and be kind of topical in that in that research so have have consider the organization uh, that they're meeting um you know maybe just to have thought strategically um about where they are in the marketplace their challenges and opportunities or, or actually about where their competitors are in the marketplace maybe what what other organizations are doing in that space um to give to give you know to provide some kind of st- substantive question at, at the end is is important I, I think it needs to be relatively organic though i don't think you can be overly scripted in in doing that um you know the other part from a preparation sense and again this is really 101 stuff but sometimes people do neglect to do that is actually have read your own cv um <laughs> before you go into the meeting it's really simple stuff but get there 20 minutes early have a coffee downstairs and 
just think about what you've done in the past so that when you're asked those questions around, you know, can you give me an example of, of, of X, you know, you're actually, you're actually giving them a, a substantive answer. You're not saying, yes, I can do that. You can, you're saying, yes, I can do that. And here's a good example of, you know, a similar challenge I faced, uh, in my, in my, in my last organization. Uh, and then, you know, to answer your question around that, you know, the question to ask at the end of the interview, I think it's really good just to, to say something along the lines of, is there anything that I've said or done in this interview that has raised a question of my suitability for the position? Well, that's a and good course, one. Yeah. That just enables the opportunity to, to, for the, for the, for the client to 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 raise where you've maybe missed the mark in the in the interview, and you can revisit that and hopefully allay any concerns before you uh, before you finish up. Do you generally find that uh, an interviewer will answer that question honestly? Look, I think if they're properly invested, they should do. Um, um, but I, it's a it's a nice way to sort of close out or, or, or revisit. You know, you, if you feel you, yourself that you've missed the mark in an area, you can go back to it. So, no, just going back to that question that you asked earlier, I, you know, having thought about it more or considered it further, I just wanted to highlight highlight this. Yeah, I think it's good. It's uh, it allows them to almost provide the segue to you going back and addressing something that you might not have addressed or answered well earlier. We often see sponsorship managers uh, coming from other industries and apart from the obvious sales skills and and relationship and client management skills what other skills do you think are really applicable in a sponsorship role yeah look i think um i said earlier that you know i like to see organizations you know challenge the status quo and and sort of think outside the square um we've had lots of recent good examples of taking individuals with you know excellent business development or sales pedigree out of other consumer facing industries whether it's fmcg or professional services or or, fi- or consumer financial services and transitioning into into uh, sponsorship and partnership delivery um, i think again that increasing focus on data and analytics uh, and crm you know, are all highly applicable to this area. Um, the more traditional qualifications around kind of legal and financial, again, in that with the right personality suit, um, can 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 come into the industry very successfully. But you know, I don't think uh, in a in a tough sponsorship market um, where there's great diversity in in opportunity, I, I don't think. We can never get away from somebody who is, you know, just unapologetically commercial or business development focused. It's it's no bad thing, and and those individuals are are thin on the ground. The next one is a listener question from Jean Willers, sponsorship and operational manager at Varsity Sports in South Africa. Thanks for the question, Jean. That question is, Jonathan, how many organisations are looking for international experience when they're employing staff? Look, I think um, certainly in those larger, more senior searches, um, there is quite often an appetite to to undertake a global search exercise. You know, speaking from an Australian perspective, um, in the past eight or nine months, obviously the four, five, seven uh, uh, visa circumstances have have rather changed, and that's a bit of a moving feast just at this time. Um, from an SRI perspective, um, we actually 
keep track on on the movement of candidates in the marketplace and and um since 2016 so for the last 18 months or so uh, 14% of our placements have come from outside uh, outside of australia um and 27% of placements have come from outside the industry um so doing some very broad math, that means about 60% of appointments have come from inside the industry and from inside Australia, though it's not quite matching that. And that 14% number doesn't necessarily account um, for the fact that some of those individuals would be in Aussies overseas returning home. Um, but it, it, to answer the question, it, it, is, it is getting harder around Visa and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the sponsorship of individuals into the marketplace. But I think... Uh, good organisations, progressive organisations, will always consider, you know, the best talent wherever they are. But do you do you generally find, or, or does it come up often, where uh, an employer is saying, "Look, it would be great to look outside the market, or I'd like somebody with a really broad range of experience, which may or may not include international experience." Absolutely, absolutely, um, and or they'll specifically say that we know the local marketplace, and they've come. They've come to us because we are Sports Recruitment International, and it is a global search, um, and they want that offering uh, as part of as part of the exercise. Apart from career progression or just a great opportunity being presented somewhere else, there are times when people leave roles because they aren't particularly happy. What are some of those negative things that make people unhappy in those sponsorship and commercial roles? That they share with you that if you know because you can ask that question why are you leaving your current role and people can be quite open with you and say things like you know it was x and it was y they don't have to be veiled like they are in an interview what are some of those things that they share with you that organizations aren't getting right that that might mean that good talent is leaving yeah um i'd, I'd say uh Company culture is definitely one. Poor leadership or poor management would be a second area. Uh, a lack of a lack of career development opportunities would be a would be a third. Um, I'd say all three of those come ahead of any um, financial um, financial question, though that is sometimes a factor. Um, but I'd say the the cultural aspects are more important. Um, you know, in the in the sponsorship space, in those roles with a with a a marketing or commercial focus. I, I, I do think that, you know, the days of a kind of gold watcher are long gone. Um, <laughs> um, but I don't me, think I watches are made in gold, are they? No, no, exactly. But, but I'd say for me, you know, a, a good move after solid achievements between the sort of three and five year mark is, is about right as well though. So, you know, uh, uh, we often see people say, look, I've achieved all I can here. It's great business. Loved it. But you know, I've had a I've had a solid four years, three years, and I think that's also a good reason to be leaving that. You know, just the desire for a, for a new challenge. I asked earlier about how sponsorship managers have changed over the past eight years or so. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you think they'll look like in eight to ten years' time? Um, look, I think I think from a from a profile perspective, there'll be variations upon the upon the upon the similar themes that we've discussed today, Daniel. Um, I think the industry will change. I think there'll be there'll be dramatic change around us, um, and whether that's esports and, and gamification, um, whether that's the continuing growth of women's sports properties. Um, 
I think we are we are in this already, but this huge globalization that's taking place. Um, so wherever 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 you are in the world, the, you know the omnipresence of the English Premier League or the NBA or the NFL or whatever it is, you know, challenging challenging local sports, um, and then you know the obvious stuff around around the move from traditional television into sort of mobile and digital. And then finally, I think from a crystal ball perspective, I'd say virtual reality uh, and the experience offerings that, that come with that and the commercialization of those areas. Um, that's that's starting right now, but certainly over the next eight years, I think that will become increasingly part of any organization's um, communication strategy. Jonathan, you spoke before about some of your seminars, and I know that they're uh, underpinned by things like uh, white papers and, and where you offer thought leadership and, and insights into the industry. Jonathan, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, maybe find out more about those things, they want to connect with you on social, etc., what can they do? Uh, email's always best. Uh, maybe old school in that as well. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my email's on the website, but jharris at sriexecutive.com. Um, and any questions that, you know, sort of spinning out of this, um, don't hesitate to give me a shout. Jonathan Harris, Managing Partner Australia at SRI, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship recruitment. Thanks, Daniel. Enjoyed it, mate. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thanks again to Jonathan for joining us on the show. I think it was a, a great mix of insightful views in such a period of change, but also some age-old, solid foundation advice that I think we should all still keep in mind. And uh, unfortunately, despite my best efforts, I couldn't get us out of uh, having to still write resumes. If you'd like to connect with Jonathan, as he said, email is best, and his address is jharris, H-A-R-R-I-S, at S-R-I-Executive.com. Com. That's about all we have time for in this episode. Don't forget to head to sponserve.net to read Mark's blog in detail. And of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or podcasts directly to your inbox each week, then shoot me an email or sign up at sponserve.net. As I said at the top of the show, keep an eye out on the email and the social channels as we confirm our next topic, guest, and the chance for you to submit questions to them. Or if you just want a good old-fashioned shout-out simply because it's cool to hear your name on the podcast, let me know and I'll make it happen because we do love hearing from you guys. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net. And of course, you can connect with Mark on LinkedIn or email at mark at sponserve.net. And don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.